Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 23. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him once we start the interview. On today's show, we will be talking to returning guest, Reverend Kosho Finch of the Shingon sect of Japanese Buddhism. Our topic is the Heart Sutra, a core teaching of esoteric Buddhism. It's a potentially very challenging teaching that demands a lot of the reader. It is a practice that can only truly be perceived experientially. This requires dedicated recitation, observance, and meditation. This being the case, we feel as though it is worthwhile to present an introduction and perhaps explore some key elements in the work in hopes that we may educate and motivate further individual study. The key concept that we will be discussing is sunyata, or emptiness, and from there we challenge the understanding of the immortal soul. Emptiness in the context of this conversation can be understood as described by Mr. Hakeda in his translation and commentary of the text The Awakening of Faith as uh, emptiness does not mean non-existence literally. It is usually used in the sense of empty or devoid of a distinct, absolute, independent, permanent, individual identity. The sutra itself is only a few paragraphs long and easily available, so we recommend listeners ideally find a copy online to study before or after the episode. Because it is so short, I will recite it here in the intro to provide some context for the conversation. When the Bodhisattva Avalokitesvara was practicing Prajnaparamita, he clearly saw that the five skanda are sunya, and therefore became free from all suffering. O Sariputra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is none other than emptiness, emptiness is none other than form. The same could be said for sensation, conception, predisposition, and consciousness. O Sariputra, all dharmas are characterized by dependence upon causation. They are neither born nor do they perish. They are neither tainted nor immaculate. They neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, in emptiness there is no form, sensation, conception, predisposition, or consciousness. No eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind. No form, sound, smell, taste, tangibleness, or objects of thought. No realm of the eyes, no realm of consciousness. There is no ignorance, no extinction of old age and death. There is no suffering, no origination of suffering, no extinction, no path. There is no wisdom and no attainment because there is no object to be attained. The Bodhisattva, because of his reliance on perfect wisdom, has no obstacle in mind. Because he has no obstacle, he has no fear. Being free from all delusions, he reaches ultimate nirvana. All the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, relying on perfect wisdom, attain perfect awakening. One should therefore know that the Prajnaparamita is the great mantra, the mantra of great wisdom, the highest mantra, the incomparable mantra, which is capable of relieving all suffering. It is true and not false. Thus, the Prajnaparamita mantra is Gate Gate Paragate Parasamgate Bodhisvaha. As always, we dedicate the episode to Hermes and extend any merits accumulated by this work to all sentient beings, so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
Okay. Hello, everyone. And we are here with our guest. We're really happy to have you back on the show, Sensei. We are here with Kosho Finch of the Enjoji Shingon Buddhist Temple in Portland. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. And Janice is here. Greetings. So we have you on today to talk about kind of a fundamental uh, core uh, teaching in uh, Buddhism, specifically esoteric Buddhism. So I guess I'll start off with a caveat that sure. um, this could be years long talking about the Heart <laughs> Sutra. <laughs> and um, it's good to talk about it sort of from the intellectual side and you know discuss the concepts. But like with everything, I think in the Buddhist teaching, it anticipates the practice and um, engagement with the material. Um, otherwise, I think you'd see academia just spawning enlightened beings all the time. Um, sure. So we, we don't see that. Um, so it, it does. Um, I've been reading, chanting, studying the Heart Sutra for 20 plus years. And every time I recite it, I see something different or reflect on it differently. It's, it's very convenient because it's, you know, in Chinese or kanji, it's, you know, one page of text in English. It's about, you know, a page, page and a half. So um, it's very convenient to memorize. It's very convenient to recite uh, in group practice. That said, it's short. So it's very terse. So there's a lot of information in there um, and a lot of things that aren't in there. Um, so I, I think reading it only by itself, most people find that it's confusing. So that's probably the question I get most often is, um, you know, what does the heart sutra mean? Why do we practice it? Why is it important? Things along that nature. So it, it, it tends to be pretty, pretty terse. I actually, we had a, a, um, Shingon conference in Hawaii about a year and a half, two years ago. And one of the speakers uh, made that comment that no one can explain the Art Sutra. Uh, it's not meant to be understood in that form of you know discussion. Uh, so I thought, okay, I'll take up the challenge and try to explain it in one minute <laughs> right after. <laughs> um, so it, it is, it does have that connotation. So I think for a long time, people just, recited it and didn't try to understand it. So um, I'll do my best as we discuss it. But um, I think you know, keep in mind, it's, it is meant to be meditated on um, and looked at, not just with the, from an intellectual standpoint. So I, I think a lot of times that's where reading it in a vacuum causes a lot of confusion, not necessarily because it's confusing, but a lot of times people are not bringing with them the right background so that's my caveat now sensei do you chant it in japanese i do yes i i learned um to chant it in japanese it is chanted in all uh you know east asian buddhist countries in the local language and i've actually uh here in portland we have some um, um buddhist lineages and they actually chant in english so i found that that quite interesting so our practice is to chant it in Japanese and then here in the United States we'll recite it in English. Yeah, I was going to say like the Japanese though, um, it still kind of has the, 
closer relationship to the Sanskrit though, right? It does. Um, it, I would say that there, <clears throat> there are a lot of specialized terms of when Buddhist texts were translated from Sanskrit to Chinese, they had to create words. Um, and the nature of, so Chinese doesn't have an alphabet, so they don't, they couldn't just transliterate the terminology. So they actually had to come up with specialized words. So if you don't know the meaning of those specialized words, the individual um, Hanzi, the Chinese characters, oftentimes reading them as a non-specialist is just nonsense. So really you have to have kind of a background. So I've actually talked to a lot of native Chinese and Japanese speakers who've told me that they prefer from a study standpoint to read it in English. Um, that makes more sense to them than trying to read it in their native language because it, it, there's so much specialized terminology within That's very interesting. Buddhism generally. Yeah, we're kind of lucky in English. Um, you know, we can pronounce the sounds of other languages or write it out in some manner. So, for example, in amongst in Western English-speaking or Western language Buddhist practitioners, um, we can use terms like prajna for wisdom, dukkha for suffering, um, and we have a way to um, render the sound and just bring in those language, those words. So Nirvana, right? we even had a, a rock group named Nirvana. <laughs> um, we can just bring those words in without coming up with new words on our own. So to some degree, Buddhist studies in English or Western languages is sometimes easier um, for that reason than in Asian languages where um, they have to come up with specialized terms. Um, so that's one of the, the one benefit in Japanese is some of the terms can, especially the mantras, can be transliterated into uh, Japanese alphabet, where Chinese doesn't have the alphabet. Um, that also caused problems when on the top of the mantras, because the Heart Sutra includes a mantra. Um, different parts of China would choose different characters to render the sound of the mantra. And that would often be different based on the dialect. So if it was a northern or southern or rural dialect, they may write it differently. So as that's passed down in historically, um, you end up with all these different ways of writing things. And none of the characters have any logical meaning. They're just there for their sound. And it, it becomes quite confusing, even for speakers of those languages. So the original dictionaries and thesauruses used during the translation period or um, some sort of definitive translation, um, people end up having to refer back. So Buddhist studies um, in East Asian languages is difficult. Okay, so a very important caveat that you had mentioned earlier, so that the responsibility is on the listener to take this to the next level and, and study and meditate on this, and perhaps this conversation can just be used as a resource for, for their study. So I was thinking of maybe taking the sutra section by section and maybe getting your thoughts, maybe some insights into some of the, some of the uh, specifics in the different sections. Does that sound, sound good? Sure. I will try, <laughs> as I said. Yes, yeah. your insights, your thoughts. Um, so we'll start with maybe the first line or so and maybe get uh, define some terms. So when the Bodhisattva 
uh, and uh, excuse my pronunciation, Avalokitsvara was practicing Prajnaparamita. He clearly saw that the five skanda are sunya and therefore became free from all suffering. So maybe let's define Prajnaparamita, uh, skanda, and sunya. Um, so Prajnaparamita is the perfection of wisdom. So um, Prajna, wisdom, Paramita um, are perfections. So there are different paramitas, different perfections, practices within Buddhism. So here you have the, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Avalokiteshvara. Um, in Tibetan, it's Chinrezig. Um, Chinese, it's Guanyin. Japanese, Kanon. And they're describing here Avalokiteshvara meditating. And in this meditative awareness, he has this profound insight into the wisdom of the Buddhas. And that wisdom, um, that insight is regarding the five skandhas. And skandhas you can translate as sometimes aggregates um, or a grouping of things. And here they're talking about um, material or mental factors. So most um, specifically to the Heart Sutra, things like form, sensation, perception, mental activity, and consciousness. So um, it might be helpful. As I said, this is there's a lot of material here. So it might be helpful to <laughs> go back and say, why was this um, important? So the next um, section there starts with uh, Sariputra, matter is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from matter. Um, so Sariputra is one of the Buddha's um, chief disciples, students at that time. And Sariputra was present for many of the Buddha's talks. So Avalokiteshvara sort of comes out of this meditative state. Um, highly likely Sariputra was nearby and says, aha, this is what I've I've just had this insight. I would. I always imagine that if this was sort of a, a Western uh, movie dramatization, you know, Avalokiteshvara would like run from the lab and grab Sariputra by the lapels. I've got it, Eureka! This is it. <laughs> so it's it's one of those those kind of spontaneous utterance moments. And that's what's captured here in the Heart Sutra. So um, I'll back up a little bit, maybe, and explain the philosophical background because there's a, there's a big philosophy question that is Avalokiteshvara assumes or knows that Sariputra is thinking about and is answering for him when he utters this. So this is the part that's not, this background's not in the text. So it might, it might be helpful to there. Um, So the Buddha attains enlightenment and has his first sermon. And the first sermon is the four, the four noble truths. And he starts off with this four point philosophical assertion. And this is sort of important because later Buddhist thinkers, as well as other Indian philosophers interpret this differently or understand it differently, um, which is natural after the Buddha's passing people, you know, start thinking, well, what did he really mean by this? Or how does this really affect me today? So we, we always do this as humans. Um, 
So the first thing he says is the, the, the truth of suffering, actually the truth of dukkha, which suffering is not a really good translation. I, you'll hear me say this often. Um, dukkha is really, when we say suffering in English, it seems really difficult to bear. It's more, the analogy given in the sutras is a wagon wheel that squeaks. So you take a long journey and every time the wheel turns, you hear the squeak. And by the end of a long journey, it's sort of driving you mad. So it wears on you. Um, it's not a, you know, you're chained to the wall of a dungeon or something type suffering. It can be, but it also has this mental impact kind of idea, things that wear on you. Um, oh, like, mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the Buddha gives a couple examples. It says aging, birth, aging, illness, and death are all a type of, uh, of dukkha. Um, and so I think we all agree that we'd like to avoid aging, illness, and death, but, um, birth in there doesn't always make sense, but, you know, babies are born crying. It's a harsh jolting shock, right? To be born. Um, and everything changes for you. So those are the first, that's the first step. So there's this number one, there's this thing called dukkha. Then number two, I know what the origin is. So I know, you know, where this comes from. It comes from craving, desire, and attachment. And then he says, and number three, you can end this suffering thing. You can get rid of this dukkha. And number four, I have a method for doing so. So this is kind of odd. If you compare this to other religions, this is kind of an odd sermon. <laughs> it's a very kind of... Um, your professor comes in, puts the briefcase on the desk and starts writing on the blackboard. Number one. Um, so here's his four point argument. Um, so that first one, the truth of suffering or the truth of dukkha impacts people because the first thing the Buddha points to is there's something wrong or there's something that we want to get out of or something we're trying to avoid this dukkha thing. So, the it's very easy for a human being to say, okay, dukkha is the problem. Dukkha is the thing we, we want to, you know, get out of our lives. So we're going to label that bad, right? So for the, and here I'm doing air quotes, bad. Um, this is the, the negative thing that we want to get away from. And this is important because the eightfold path, um, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, mindfulness, concentration. So the Buddha then gives a list of sort of positive things that if you do these things positively, good air quotes, good, you can get out of the air quotes, bad dukkha suffering. So it's very easy for a practitioner to start making a connotation between this good and bad. And, um, there's also in the background of this kind of how Indian philosophers uh, structure their arguments. And if you're a philosopher, and again, Buddhism is sort of a new religion in India at the time. And the background is Hinduism. And into that background, you have um, a myriad of gods. And you have the idea that, um, you know, humans are created. Humans have a, a soul or a self. And, um, you know, you want to have this kind of spiritual union with the Godhead, 
in the Hindu uh, concept. And Buddhism says, no, there's no soul, there's no self, right? That's a fundamental comp component of this whole thing. So you have one, you've got a couple factions in India. You've got one non-Buddhist philosopher saying, there is a soul, there is a self, and that is an unbreakable, definite thing. You, can, you can't reduce this soul thing any further. It's fundamental. And you have some Buddhist philosophers that say, um, although there's no soul, there has to be a list of things that are inherently good or a list of things that are inherently bad because the Buddhist told us that this dukkha thing is something to be avoided. And our spiritual practice is focused on adhering to the good rather than the bad. So that's sort of the philosophical milieu that's in the background of the Heart Sutra and why Avalokiteshvara has this insight of discussion. Otherwise, without, I think, some of this knowledge, it's, you read this text and you're like, why is, this, why is he telling us this? Why is this important? <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, so this is a, this is where the practice or philosophical inquiry comes, um, or even as an intellectual challenge. Um, can we name something that lasts forever? Can we name something that can't be reduced down, right? It's fundamentally what it is. So this was the, you know, going back to the early 600 BC up until first century, second century, this is a big philosophical conundrum for people. You know, is there a soul? Um, if there's no soul, why are you doing spiritual practice? What are you trying to change? What is it that we have inside of us? All these questions are, are floating around. And you eventually get to sort of two general schools of thought. One that you can make a list of, and I'm greatly simplifying, um, that you can sort of make a list of irreducible qualities or things. And you can label them good or bad. And those are the things that you should do and the other things you should avoid. And that's sort of the spiritual path. So that's one way of thinking. And then when there were non-Buddhist Indian philosophers, that said, well, that makes complete sense because, you know, humans have a soul. The soul has a fundamental quality. And that quality is imparted to us, you know, through the creator. And then here you have kind of the emptiness philosophy within Buddhism saying you're all wrong. Everybody's wrong. There's, there's this thing. And that's kind of what the Heart Sutra is getting at. So it m might help to talk about the idea of self. So the Buddhist concept here, because uh, this is sort of discussed in the Heart Sutra also, the Buddhist concept here is that there is no independently existing self. So when I was ordained, I was given the name Kosho. Um, but what is Kosho? Is he, you know, a specific person that will endure forever? Or, um, you know, is, is, is he a combination of components that exist for a time? Um, with regard to Kosho, it's easy because there was a time when I wasn't Kosho. So I still remember that. There's 20... Three years of not kosho, and then there's all those years of kosho. So 
is easy to kind of reflect. So the Buddhist idea says um, there's no independent, there's no soul, and there's no self. Meaning, if you reduce down and and parse out all the pieces of yourself, there's nothing in the middle that is sort of this seed that is you. And that idea is very scary for people um, because everything we do in life is focused on protecting ourselves, feeding ourselves. It's we look out of our eyes onto the world from ourselves. Um, and so to take apart this self concept that we built up um, for decades is scary. And that's a kind of a fundamental part of Buddhist spiritual practice, but that's the part that really needs um, practice. It's hard to um, come to that insight through intellectual thinking only because you end up building up this intellectual mind that then becomes the thing that you cherish the most and protect even more. And you have to publish papers and build it up and it, it has its own persona. Um, so sensei, mm-hmm. you are defining uh, a key component to the sutra um, emptiness. Yes. We're kind of talking about that now. And I'm going to maybe just challenge you here for the sake of conversation. I know we've talked about this uh, in person, but speaking of emptiness and no um, distinct individual continuing self, now how does that mesh with the idea of reincarnation? What is it that uh, reincarnates if there really is nothing to the individual? And in addition to that, maybe we can, or you can, <laughs> uh, speak about um, the reality of spirits and and gods and how they can exist in this realm where there is no uh, necessarily a definitive independent existence. This is going to be fun. Okay. So, <laughs> so with, sorry, no, no, this is good. So within, um, and again, I think uh, as Americans, we are, um, we, we use terms based on Eastern philosophy sort of um, trickling in to the West by different means. So actually within Buddhism, there's not reincarnation, there's rebirth. Um, so the Hindu idea would be more reincarnation. And it's good sometimes to compare them. So reincarnation, um, again, from a, a Hindu or Indian Buddhist philosophy might say that there's a soul, this fundamental component that moves from lifetime to lifetime. And Buddhism said there is no self, independently existing self. There's no uh, soul. And so it's not reincarnation, it's rebirth. Meaning, um, and this is a a very, um, I take full responsibility for this explanation. So um, it's a very shortened explanation. There, There is a much longer one, but the topic today is the heart too, so I'll try to make it. <laughs> um, that the energy, efforts, um, intentions, the karma, the intentional actions of this life continue when the physical body can no longer go on. So they 
manifest again in a new entity. There is a bundle of factors that continue, but it's not a, uh, it's not as if you poof out of this existence and find yourself again somewhere else exactly as you were. <clears throat> so maybe a good example of this is, let's say you had a twin. Your twin and you are separated at birth. So you're raised in this country and your twin is raised in a foreign country. And you meet each other again at age 40. Um, so there are some things that will be similar. You might have some uh, similar tastes, but you're not going to be the same person. Your experiences, environment, family, all those things shape you. And would the two, would the twins then say we're the same? They're going to be different. They're going to be different based on their um, all the different factors that created them. So this is goes towards the concept of emptiness. So I always say you shouldn't just say emptiness. It's sort of empty of an independent existence. So we are all dependent on so many different factors for our lives. We are dependent on our families. We're dependent on our school, city, classmates, siblings, uh, language, education. All these things go into creating what we would today reflect on and say, this is myself. This is me. Um, and then if we sort of peel back those layers, right, we peel back all those different factors back to the moment of birth when these twins are separated. At that moment, they have a lot more in common. By the time they can assert and describe a self, they're going to be very different. And those differences are based all on their experiences. And the experiences are uh, happenstance, right? Maybe the nurse just switched the kids by accident and they go off to different lives. So this is where um, the idea of a self, you know, what we're talking about is um, from a Buddhist standpoint, not forever. It's not something that's inherent. It's not that you're born and you're, um, you will become the person you are today. If you reflect on all the different experiences you had, you realize those experiences and brought you to today. There's some other influences too, from a, from a pure Buddhist spiritual standpoint, there's um, karma of past actions uh, influencing that as well. But it's not a, um, I'm kosho. Uh, when I die, I'm going to be kosho again, exactly the same. Is that? Okay. So, yeah. So karma takes the place of, of the soul and perhaps the Western world, um, kind of a, a bundle, a bundle of karma or a combination of karmas? Well, this raises a couple questions for me, if I might interject. So it's, it, as far as I understand it, uh, there's a few directions I could go with this, but as far as I understand it, I mean, the skandhas seem to correspond in some senses to the uh, complexes of depth, depth psychology, um, you know, sort of autonomous complexes. Uh, and on the other hand, they do seem to be like aggregates of karma. However, I feel as though what you're describing is the um, the development of the habitual character as opposed to the, I guess what in Hindu philosophy would be the Atman, the the uh, the 
this sort of because you know in, the, in Hindu philosophy there's this idea of the uh, reincarnating monad or well monad's a Greek term but you know re reincarnating spark of self that is beyond the sort of changing impermanent personality that is produced by uh, the effects uh, of the actions and reactions of karma. So what about what about the idea of the Atman in relation to this? So, so say you have this external personality that mutates according to conditions and decisions. What about a eternal, timeless uh, sort of uh, self at the center of things? Or would, would you say that the Heart Sutra stands in a position that uh, that isn't really existent, that that's an illusion? Uh, yes. So the, whereas Hinduism has um, Atman, uh, Buddhism has an Atman, that there is no uh, self, there is no Atman. Um, and again, philosophically, this would be the challenge. Like, where is it? Point to it. And um, the, the old, during Indian times, I never actually understood this um, uh, analogy, but at the, um, there's a tree um, in um, tropical countries, but it fruits by, you know, birds dropping the seed in another tree, and then it sort of takes over. And so at the core, the, the old tree dies off, and so it's hollow. But if we, if we pull back all these different factors, um, we can't find this soul, this thing in the middle that's unchanging, that's fundamentally us. Um, and this is definitely an area that, you know, people don't like. It's, it's scary. And it's definitely something that transcends intellectual um, explanation. And this is where, you know, we have to, the Buddhist understanding or expectation is that um, you're going to do practices to um, challenge that idea, question it deeply, rigorously, and try to find a different answer. And I would say, um, none of these ideas are meant to be taken with blind faith. So if Buddhism postulates um, an anatman or a lack of soul, as a practitioner, we're supposed to go and test that theory. We're not just accepting it blindly. So you sit down on the cushion, go on pilgrimage, recite, chant, think about it, and then try to find this inherent thing. And it's easier, I think, to do it with something less personal. So start with, you know, any common object sitting next to you. You know, I have a pen. What What is fundamentally pin about this ink pen? You know, it's metal, rubber, ink, and plastic. Um, all of those things you can break down to other components. So, you know, as it exists right now, it's a pen. We call it that. We give it that convenient label. But um, I think modern science actually helps us in this respect that um, we can break it down to the, its elements. And then we know um, from quantum physics, um, you know, where are, you know, it's empty space and atoms and infinitely smaller particles. And, you know, the more advanced science gets, the more we realize it really is empty. Um, in a, in a true sense that there's nothing there. It's 
just on some level, our, um, our molecules can in, interact with its molecules in a way that's convenient for us as humans to write things with this pen. But there's not a fundamental pen quality there. It's a label we give. And so when it comes to inanimate objects, it's a fun intellectual exercise. When it comes to people, it's scary. Um, so that's, I think, one of the reasons, you know, a lot of people could confront that idea and they instantly throw it out. Say, nope, I can't accept that. Um, but if we reflect on it, you know, what, who are we really? What, what is the self? What's there? What's beneath the, um, the surface? Um, if we start pulling back our likes and dislikes, you know, I like broccoli. Is Kosho fundamentally a broccoli liking person? I could do without broccoli. So if I don't eat broccoli, am I no longer Kosho? You know, what, where does it end? And so the deeper we go, um, again, it can become scary. So this is also the caution sign goes up. One of the reasons why it was important for this kind of spiritual practice to be done, um, you know, not for someone to take an idea and run off. And sometimes people would get a good example. I think a lot of these responses, at least for me, uh, came up when I was in high school. So I'd have like a very uh, crafty answer as a high school kid and say, well, if it's all emptiness and nothing matters, then I can rob a bank and, uh, you know, nothing, none of these things matter. So sometimes I think we can get um, kind of knee-jerk reactions at the beginning to the ideas without really understanding their intended purpose. So this kind of spiritual inquiry is not meant to be done kind of um, in our armchair solo because it can become scary. We can have uh, developed extreme ideas um, with regard to it. And that's not the point. The point is to reduce our attachment, to reduce our grasping, to notice how much we cling to an idea of a self and how that clinging colors our interactions with other people, our respect, compassion for other people and other ideas and beings. Um, not to sort of just throw up our hands and radically say, you know, there's no meaning to anything. I can't find this, this person that I thought I had. Um, it's, the purpose is to look at the attachment part. So, and that, again, going back to the initial Four Noble Truths of, of Buddhism, we want to look at that question so that we actually have insight into what the Buddha is postulating to see, does it, is it true for us? Does it work? Uh, what does that mean for us? So, I can almost hear people turning off the uh, podcast because these ideas are <laughs> not necessarily going to be very popular <laughs> um, because they are potentially terrifying, uh, depending on where you're coming from. So, um, I think we've almost gotten through the first line of the sutra. <laughs> Maybe um, considering. Uh, what you've just laid out, though, can we maybe expand that to then uh, the Buddhist ideas of, of bodhisattvas, Buddhas, and gods as it relates to uh, not having an identity, not having a continuation of, of any kind of self? Because even the gods in Buddhism, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
they travel. They may become a person after they are a god. They don't necessarily stay gods e- eternally. Yeah, so the idea of um, you know having no um, well of, of impermanence applies to all things and all beings, except two things: uh, Buddhas and empty space. So these are the only things that are not conditioned in Buddhist thinking. So yes, in the Buddhist thinking, everything has a an ending point, or at least at some point you know, where it's going to transition. We no longer recognize it as one thing and it's going to become something else. Um, so humans, you know, the longest, probably 120 years that we're going to be alive. Cats and dogs, somewhere around, you know, 10 to 15, 18 years, somewhere in there. Um, and gods, um, from the Buddhist standpoint, may live, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years uh, from our perspective. But, even they will have uh, an end. So heavenly beings also have a finite you know, limit. So this might be maybe not always good for like interfaith dialogue conversation. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> if you look at, you know, we're in the West, so the <clears throat> leading spiritual practice is Christianity. Um, you know, and the, the, the Bible starts off with this war in heaven and people being cast out, you know, angels, aren't there anymore in the book of Genesis, you have angels, you know, having relations with human women and creating new races of, of people. So the ideas I think are there for a lot of other spiritual practices. They're just not focused on, but yes, um, we, this is one of the reasons why Buddhism doesn't emphasize heaven as a goal of spiritual practice. Now, if you end up in heaven, that's great. Don't get me wrong. But we would say it's not a permanent place. So if the teaching is asking you to look at, you know, what is a permanent respite from suffering, from dukkha, then the heavens aren't it, right? If it's in a Christian sense, if it's possible to have a war in heaven, then if you want to escape human life because you're tired of war, then we know that this other place also has war. So, um, and in all the mythologies ever, the gods go to war with one another. They're, they're quite crafty at um, seducing, killing one another, and so these things exist. So, I always thought this was fascinating. Side note, when I was younger, that you'd read um, about heavenly beings, and I was like, wow, they, they're just as jealous and backstabbing and conniving as we are. Like, this is <laughs> very interesting. So I would say that, you know, the idea of impermanence, you know, can be shown, you know, I can't think of a spiritual teaching where, you know, gods also don't die. They are, they kill one another. So, um, and after which they may have rebirth in a different, you know, non heavenly existence. So, you know, how do you get to heaven? I think even in, uh, monotheistic religions it's referred to as rebirth in heaven so you, your body doesn't go something else does but that part is less the focus of buddhist practice and more the introspective part so i think your other question was where do bodhisattvas fit in bodhisattvas are those who've 
taken this vow to attain enlightenment, but not just for themselves, but for all others. And the idea in Buddhism is that the, the energy or power of that vow, because it's selfless, uh, moves the individual to accomplish things that they wouldn't do for a purely selfish goal. So I think we can see this within, you know, day, daily life. An accident happens or there's a tragedy or something and people are moved to make massive changes. It could be as simple as donating money to a charity um, in the face of a tragedy. It could be, you know, a firefighter running into a house and disregarding their own life to save someone else, which if you ask someone on the street, you know, would you exchange your life for someone else? They'd probably say no, but we see examples of it all the time. So the Bodhisattva is progressing on this path and at some level has this deep insight like Avalokiteshvara. And because of that is no longer um, creating the type of karma that keeps them bound to rebirth. But seeing that people are still suffering, they decide to stay anyway. So this is the great sort of compassionate vow of the Bodhisattva. So again, like the firefighter, they, they have the oxygen, they have the axe, they have the equipment, they can get out, but they keep searching. They keep going through the building, looking for people who might be there. Um, and sometimes, you know, to their own detriment, but they've opted into that. So this is the, you know, the compassion of the Bodhisattva. Okay. Thank you. Um, and not to beat a dead horse, cause I do want to move on a little bit, but, um, what do you think then of, uh, I think most people that have looked into Buddhism have looked into Tibetan Buddhism at some, to some degree, um, what do you think about this idea of rebirth where the Dalai Lamas are uh, able to identify objects that potentially belong to them in a former life that seems to almost speak to there being a self? Or am I wrong? Or how, do, how do you see that? What there is in Buddhism, the way it's described as the alaya consciousness, which is sometimes referred to as the storehouse consciousness that um, the information isn't lost between lives. So you have access to it. The more spiritually developed the person, the more access to that memory that they have. Um, <clears throat> so again, a lot of people go, oh, how convenient. <laughs> and I was one of those, like, oh, how convenient of explanation. Um, there are, you know, even within your own life, there's probably things you don't remember, but with enough prodding, you probably will remember. So, you know, you may not remember every birthday party you had, but, um, you know, given photos or reminders or, you know, your mom saying, don't you remember we got you? That's when we got you the tricycle. You're like, oh, now I remember. Um, so the information's there. It just needs to be triggered to be accessible. And from a Buddhist standpoint, some people just have that. and it's sort of just where they are. They, they are born and that's not a problem. Other people develop it through spiritual practice. Um, other people don't, you know, just, they're like, I, I got nothing. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. And, and that's okay. It's not that relevant. But to answer your question about, um, you know, there is a focus on finding the reborn um, past teachers within Tibetan Buddhism. Um, there is a test. They get tested. And, you know, they have to answer questions correctly at a very young age, things that they wouldn't know if they weren't 
that person come back, so to speak. And again, I'm, this is a bad explanation because it, again, um, but the same, maybe we should say stream of consciousness continuing all Buddhist, um, traditions have this to some degree. Um, Tibetan Buddhism just really made this a central practice. And I think recently the Dalai Lama said, you know, for their people and their culture, because the, the people were so remote and to just the nature of the interaction between people, that was a good practice. But going forward, maybe that's something they don't need to do anymore. So I think that's probably very uh, insightful that it's not some kind of fundamental component of Buddhism. It was something that people found useful for a time. But yeah, it would be this alaya or storehouse consciousness that the memories of past existences exist and it's accessible, just learning how to ac actually access it. To be clear, it almost sounds like that storehouse consciousness is enduring. Yes. Okay. So um, it is, um, it kind of goes along with the karmic streams. So when the Buddha attained enlightenment, that was one of the uh, bonuses you get is complete recall of all past lives and all past knowledge. Um, so I can hear someone listening saying, well, why don't I remember them? Personally, I think it functions much like uh, repressed memories. So one, that would be a lot of information to walk around with, a lot of baggage. Um, two, without a tremendous amount of spiritual practice, it would destroy you psychologically. So you remember everyone you ever have, were friends with and all of those deaths, and it's a lot. So even within this lifetime, we often repress memories until we're ready to unpack them fully. So I would speculate that's one of the, the reasons. There's a, the trauma of dying is enough to kind of file that information away until and unless it's needed. So, you know, we have this consciousness aspect. We also have this body and the body has its own needs and the body doesn't need all that information to eat and reproduce and sleep. So, so why couldn't we equate that uh, enduring consciousness with a soul? I mean, could, could we stretch it and say that's the equivalent? I think on a convenience level um, that might be a practical, just handy definition I think from a strict Buddhist philosophical standpoint, um, the same rules of emptiness would apply. So start peeling them back. And when you peel them all back, there's nothing left. So hypothetically, let's say there's 500 past lives. Um, when you peel back to the 500th, what do you, or the first one, what do you, where, where does that put you? There's still not, you know, those are all wrappers. What's under the last wrapper is there's not, there's no thing. Again, it's just decisions, actions, the karmic, you know, the karma propelling it forward. And so that's the, 
from a Buddhist standpoint, or you know, within all religion and philosophy, like the initial cause problem, right? What's the initial cause? In monotheistic religions, they usually postulate a god as a initial cause, a creator. And this goes then, right? Philosophy 101, who created God and from what does God create? So those questions we can't, we don't know. We some people believe, but no, we don't know. So this is the if we, I guess, following the text, um, you know, the Heart Sutra goes on to say, you know, all mental and physical events and qualities are characterized by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Right. So nothing, nothing static. Um, so my question is this: um, it's, it seems to me as though what we're really discussing is the phenomenal self in the world that is ever changing in the impermanent realm we live in. It does seem as though if Buddha nature is realized, then there is a self that is realized. I mean, what about Avalokiteshvara, right? Like there's not a million Avalokiteshvaras. There's one, one, uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. So who is Avalokiteshvara if there is no such thing as a self? So I guess this would be where I, I always say emptiness is empty of what? It's empty of an independent existence. So that means there is a dependent existence. It doesn't mean there's no existence. So this is also the where the human mind sometimes, especially in the West, starts to hurt. Um, we often think of things in a very um, zero-sum game. It's either this or that. And Buddhism is the middle path where it says there's something in between this and that. And that's the hardest part to conceptualize in the West for a couple reasons. One, we don't operate that way. And two, our language doesn't have space for that. And we think in language. So what is between the extremes? Think of it in terms of mathematics, right? What's between one and negative one? And, and that's the hardest thing to conceptualize. So um, it was the hardest math problem for a long time. Right? A lot of cultures don't have zero. So this is the, from a, um, you know, what's it like to be a Buddha? I, I again, Surely I take full responsibility for this explanation, but, you know, being fully and having a complete understanding of your dependent nature, right? Not seeing yourself as independent, not seeing yourself as separate, seeing yourself and understanding that you're, again, sorry for the use of self, there's no self. Seeing this, this bundle of things as completely connected to all other and dependent on all other things, which in a way is very beautiful. Because that's the, the real nature of things. Right? We are actually connected to everyone else and everything else. We're not separate from anything, but we think we are. And that is what the Buddha said is our fundamental from, that's the source of which dukkha arises. We see everything as separate, as independent, and from that all of our problems stem. Right. So right now, the United States and Iran have tension because political people say we have these all these separate 
interests. But what if people just walked out and shook hands and said, actually, we, we all have the same interests. We all want our families to be safe. We all care about our children. We all want to have, you know, good food, clean water, education, and we want the elderly to be taken care of. That we, should, we have far more in common. We are far more dependent than we are independent. But there are, that doesn't sell as many products. So, <laughs> so we reinforce the independent and separateness of things when in fact we're far more the same and we really are interconnected. But that's not, that doesn't win elections. Well, so, and this brings to mind another sort of a question. So like, you know, at Koyasan, where Gukai is interred, people will, you know, make pilgrimages there and believe his spirit is very much alive and present. So then if there is, would you say that Gukai is, then present as a Buddha in his Buddha nature, in his um, in in Koyasan. I mean, because Gukai was a historical personality, but at the same time, he's considered a Bodhisattva within Shingon, yes. right? So, I, I guess this is the in in the. Buddhist um, studies world, this is sort of the two truths. There's sort of a uh, convenient truth and then this ultimate truth. So the convenient truth is, um, you know, even the Buddha had to eat and use the toilet um, when he was in the human body. So however enlightened you are, there's still things you need to take care of. Um, And every practitioner's understanding is different. So um, some people practice on the level of, um, you know, making a pilgrimage to Koyasan and, you know, offering incense and praying in front of Kukai's tomb and usually praying for, you know, fairly day-to-day things, health, family, you know, wanting to ensure that deceased ancestors are taken care of. Or we could look at it from a, you know, maybe a little bit more, I guess, Buddhist philosophical standpoint that, you know, uh, Shingon Buddhists believe uh, Kukai is was an enlightened being, and we are paying respects to that vow, his Bodhisattva vow. So um, his vow is to remain in um, the heavenly realms and return when the Buddha of the future Maitreya comes back. Right. So he, we, we look upon him as a as a Bodhisattva for that reason. Is is that the case? You know, again, there's no blind faith in Buddhism. So, you know, I would ask people to evaluate that based on his writings and his works and, um, you know, what he accomplished. But it's not required that people believe that. I think all of these are questions. Um, even if you look at the Four Noble Truths, they are a series of, you could read them as a series of questions. And then evaluate the argument. You know, have you ever suffered? Have you ever got grown old? Have you ever gotten ill? Have you ever seen death? 
right? So you, you can test all of them and then proceed out. So some of the, the concepts, especially in the Heart Sutra, are um, down the road philosophical conundrums that we struggle with. Um, but this is, you know, again, this is not the insight of Sariputra. It's not the insight of Kosho. It's the insight of the Bodhisattva. And it's the sort of pure mind stream, so to speak, of the Bodhisattva at that moment. So they're having that, that deep insight. We can study it, but this isn't my insight. It's not my, it's not the way I walk around. I don't say, oh, this bowl of rice, yet it is completely dependent. I don't have that level of enlightened existence and view at all times. Sometimes you have these insights, though, right, through practice. You have deeper insight into it. That leads me to ask, so what what are the practical benefits of the Heart Sutra um, for someone who studies it continuously? Um, how does it manifest in your life, or how should it, how does it look, you know, 10 years down the road as opposed to one year down the road? Obviously, everyone's going to be different, but how, how should it ideally be? How should you be living your life if you are practicing correctly according to the Heart Sutra? How do things look, if that makes sense? So, oh, it does. So the Heart Sutra is focused a lot on um, emptiness. So maybe turn it around and say, rather than emptiness, think of it as interdependence. And if we see things as more interdependent, we see that we have more in common if we see all the commonalities rather than we see the separateness, we can develop more compassion. So a good example of that is I was driving yesterday and someone pulled out in front of me and, you know, luckily there was no accident, but uh, the passengers in the car got upset. And in all honesty, my question was, did I have the stop sign? Cause I thought, well, maybe it was my fault. And they said, no, they had the stop sign. You, you were okay. I was like, oh, okay, well then no one was hurt. But I could see the person made a mistake rather than say, how dare they do that to me, right? I could see my connection to them. So then I didn't have any emotional response or quickened heart rate or any of these things to deal with. So this is part of the, how do you get out of suffering? Um, or if we look at anger, if we look at the interdependence of anger, where does anger come from? Does anger exist separately from us? Does anger sit inside of you somewhere saying, I can't wait to come out. I just can't wait. I just, just wait. There'll be something today and I'll, I'll be able to jump out there and assert myself. Um, so no, anger is, is not independent. It's dependent. It's dependent on a bunch of things. And so if we see its dependent nature, we can root it out, right? We see that giving, you know, more energy to it is not beneficial to us. That leads us deeper into suffering, not out of suffering. You know, all of these things, the more we reflect on them, we slowly pull back from all these kind of knee-jerk reactions. So again, that level isn't in the Heart Sutra, but it's in the Heart Sutra, right? It's not, it's not explicit, but... The more we, you know, again, it's useful because it's so small. The more we practice it and then we reflect on different things in our lives that are, you know, it's dependent nature. 
I think we have a deeper appreciation and a, a deeper sense of compassion. So it's much harder to have anger. It's much harder to not see yourself in other people and other situations or, you know, to other people. Right? That's one of the biggest problems that we have in, in human society. We, we other people. They're not like us. I'm different. No, we're really so, so similar. And that's what, I think that's one of the big practical takeaways of the Heart Sutra. There's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of PhD dissertations waiting to be written on the Heart Sutra. <laughs> From a, um, I think one of the keys here, so if we, I know we're not exactly going line by line, but in the very beginning, he clearly saw that the five aggregates are empty and because and thereby was freed from all suffering and distress. So by having that insight, Avalokiteshvara no longer had suffering or distress. I still have suffering and distress. I would like to not have suffering and distress. So for that reason, I, I was intrigued by this teaching. And in the time that I've practiced it, I've had less suffering and distress. So I think it's beneficial. But it does ask us, to confront our, our narrative. And our narrative is always separating ourselves from others and reasserting that we're right and others are wrong and more separation. So we, we rarely go through life. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, oh, but it's all the same road and we're all driving on it and we're all you know, you, you first traveler on the great highway of life, you know, we don't, that's not our response, but it could be, and we could have a completely different, you know, experience. It seems to me as though, uh, the understanding gives, gives an individual freedom to walk through life and not be controlled. Cause you could see things like anger or your example of the, uh, the traffic situation, you can see that these different factors are coming together to create this anger in you. So the anger, like you were saying, is dependent on all these little things and you're not being controlled by those things anymore if you're able to observe them. And that seems, at the very least, to be very beneficial. You can see how silly things are um, and, and not, be, not be controlled by, by your emotions. And that, that's the real mindfulness, right? Can we be aware of it in the moment? Um, and then it doesn't arise. So it's not that we don't have feelings. I think sometimes people say, well, I, I don't want to be a block of wood or, you know, um, it's not that we don't have feelings. You're just not controlled by them. Either they're not, you see where they're arising from, you know, in the, you know, people get upset in traffic all the time. Um, it's fear. Oh, what if you would hit me? Then I'd have to get a car. I need this car to go to work, you know? And so that fear manifests as, as anger or, you know, you're going to make me late. I'm late for something. You know, it's really all these other things, but it's not actually that thing that, that thing in the moment is just a trigger. And then it unleashes all these other, again, dependent emotions. So the better we become at seeing that. And again, the heart suture starts off with at one time when the Bodhisattva was practicing profound Prashaparamita. So, when he was meditating, so it, it starts off by saying, after a period of meditation, so I, I think, just my guess, but you don't become a bodhisattva overnight. So after a long time, 
Avalokiteshvara had this insight. So after a long time, I don't get upset by, by people's driving. Um, so I don't have road rage, but it wasn't instant. Mm-hmm. It wasn't instant. So um, the same, but you have that, that insight. But I think the more we have, again, insight into, again, going back to my initial kind of what's the background for this, the philosophical questions. Um, people were making lists of what are the good things, what are the bad things, what things should I avoid, right? And so that takes away the possibility that something bad could create something good. So you see a tragedy and you're moved to change your life or you're moved to do something good. So in a way, there's no ultimate good or bad. A bad thing could create a good thing. So this very rigid thinking, you know, Buddhism is saying is not beneficial. That's creating more suffering. So the more flexible our thinking is, again, in the middle, that's where, that's how we escape this dukkha, right? That's how we escape the suffering. But we're so tremendously conditioned to see things as either or. And that's hard because, again, our language even limits us, limits our understanding. So it seems, so I'm going to jump forward in the sutra a little bit, because I, th- I think we've been covering everything in the in the kind of body of, of the sutra. Uh, the Bodhisattva, because of his reliance on perfect wisdom, has no obstacles in mind, because he has no obstacles, he has no fear, being free from all delusions, he reaches ultimate nirvana. That that sounds like what, what you're talking about here. Is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the big one there is, you know, he has no... He has no obstruction, so he has no fear. He has nothing is obstructing his understanding, so he's no longer afraid. And that's a big one. I mean, uh-huh. you say that they, they don't have fear. But in an ultimate sense, right, an ultimate sense, you know, you're walking through the jungle and the tiger is going to attack you and you recognize, um, you know, precisely where you are in the spiritual path, then you're not afraid. That doesn't mean you don't want to be you want to avoid being eaten. Of course you want to avoid being eaten, <laughs> but you might not have the same fear. But I think in the bigger one here, that's not the fear that we really face every day. We face kind of a deep intellectual fear. What's going to be, what's going to happen to me in the future? You know, am I going to get a promotion? Can I pay the rent? You know, we have these kind of day-to-day fears and what the problem is, the fear, not the underlying concerns. So we can still have concern about that. Okay, these are things I need to do. But the fear tends to take over, right? Oceans tend to take over. And those are optional. Certain things are unavoidable. We, we've all been born. We're all going to get older. We're all going to become ill. We're all going to die. But all of the trepidation, fear, complaining, you know, um, all the different strategies for avoidance for those things, those things we can avoid. And then if we welcome it, hello, sickness, you know, Oh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was very sick. I had the flu because I was late getting my flu shot. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, I haven't been this sick in a really long time. And I realized, Oh, I'm really thankful for my body when it's healthy. That was my, my insight. Cause I hadn't been that sick in a long time. And I thought, oh, this is good also because 
um, it helps me understand other people who you know are this ill. That's a choice to think that way. I could just sit around and oh, it's horrible, <laughs> but you can use it. Anything can be used. So again, there's no ultimate good or bad. Some people say, oh, the flu is horrible, or the flu can be an opportunity. So it's up to us, right? How do we how do we approach things? But that's hard. That, that comes with practice. That's a choice to actually do that, not something that just happens because we read the heart sutra one time. <laughs> right. Yes. Much easier said than done. Um, I, I want to jump back a little bit. Um, there's a line. Um, there is no wisdom and no attainment because there is no object to be attained. I'd like you to maybe talk about that, but also the fact that in the next line is, is what we were just talking about. Um, there is no wisdom and no attainment because there is no object to be obtained. But then it says the Bodhisattva, because of his reliance on perfect wisdom, has no obstacles in mind. Seems like a contradiction. How, how do you explain it? Um, it is meant to be a bit of a contradiction just to get us thinking. So there's nothing to be attained, meaning it's not outside of us. It's not something we go and get. It's not, um, you know, if we climb to the top of the mountain, someone can hand it to us. We attain it because we let go, right? We let go of ignorance, false thinking. We let go of the extremes and then we see it. So this is, I think, very much the case. So by relying on it, meaning the Bodhisattva, because he relies on kind of this middle way of thinking, this middle way of seeing it, rather than relying on the extremes, he has these benefits, this lack of fear, lack of obstructions. I think that's the, the key. So there's some kind of interweaving of additional terminology here that might be helpful. But again, if we think of it from how this comes about, right? Avalokiteshvara sort of having this spontaneous utterance. Ah, oh, because I'm not longer doing this, I can see very clearly that. Because this is in the moment saying it. And Sariputra is relating it to us. This is what Avalokiteshvara said. This isn't exactly um, a teaching, right? This wasn't meant as a lecture. Okay, students, this is how you understand wisdom. The reason we, from a shingle perspective, the reason we practice this is we look at this as the actual consciousness of the bodhisattva prajna, the bodhisattva wisdom in the words. So we, by practicing it, we are sort of getting into the mind of that bodhisattva rather than reading it as instructions. We're trying to actually reenact that experience and by reenacting it, again, my explanation, by reenacting it, then it happens for us also. Did that help? Yeah, no, that's a lot of food for thought. Um, while I'm digesting, Janice, do you have do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, it seems like you were referring to Prajna as uh, being a, the Bodhisattva that also sort of represents the reconciliation of duality into a non-dual perspective. It kind of seems like that non-dual uh, orientation, that non-dual perspective is essential to accurately understanding things, to having right view. 
And I personally find that fascinating because of a parallel to a to a Western wisdom tradition where uh, the figure of Sophia uh, is very much there's there's a um, Gnostic book called The Thunder, which uh, the 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 closest tra- the the most true translation of the title would be like Thunder Perfect Consciousness, and in the in the in the narrative, uh, Sophia, I would say it's Sophia probably, um, who's really an a Western sort of uh, correlate to Prejnia, also uses um, a sort of uh, paradoxical uh, paradoxical declarations to to I believe bring the the reader into an awareness of the reality that transcends uh, duality, you know, birth and death, sickness and health, um, you know, real and unreal, and, and tries to bring them into this suchness, this awareness of suchness. And uh, would you say that that's um, something that is is uh, embraced in the Heart Sutra, that, that suchness? Which is beyond duality. Absolutely, I think um, I'm gl- actually kind of glad you brought up this sort of paradoxical statement. So um, I, I definitely think there's some of this going on, and it is definitely a, a huge practice within Buddhist practice, and you could even even say it in mantra practice that you know language is turned around and used as a tool to sort of shock us or awaken us out of language because language can trap us in one particular way of thinking and so how do we get out of it by contemplating sort of these um you know maybe what initially seems nonsensical statements we have a different way of of understanding this is i think in all wisdom traditions one of the challenges how do you transmit experience from you know teacher to student and within the buddhist tradition there's a variety of different practices but you do find often um, maybe especially exemplified by the koan tradition in zen where something that on its face maybe seems nonsensical is actually a tool to sort of break through a a very rigid way of thinking and that's also the, the key as i was saying in the beginning this kind of you know it makes sense if you're a spiritual practitioner to like, okay, let me avoid all of the bad things and only do the good things. But then that sort of has a tendency to lock you in to thinking that there are these fundamental goods or fundamental bads and that becomes its own obstacle. So in many ways, I think here, Avalokiteshvara sort of has that breakthrough moment himself and sees the interdependence of things completely. And it sounds like um, what you guys are talking about is used in in different traditions. Uh, the trickster or the coyote or or different figures in that way are able to turn things upside down and kind of expand your mind so that you are able to think outside the box and maybe understand things that are more experiential rather than intellectual. Absolutely, and I, I want to be really clear that um, Buddhism, even within Buddhism, we we don't think we have a monopoly on all these ideas. Um, they exist in many wisdom traditions, I think what the Buddha was doing was it was like a calibration. So a lot of Buddhist teaching was just a slight fine tuning 
So this, this information exists. He said, just what if you were to view it from a slightly different perspective? And that was really the, the key, you know, meditation existed. All of these, a lot of these terms existed in Indian philosophy. Um, if you ask me, I, you know, the Buddha could have appeared anywhere. I think it was just India of that time had the ideas so that he could get it done in a lifetime. Um, other places, maybe just, there would have been a lot of unwinding, but there's this concept of self. The Buddha said, okay, the way you're looking at it, just what if you looked at it slightly differently or this idea of karma? What if you looked at it slightly differently? So the, the ideas were there. Um, and I think they, they exist. Um, and Janice, in the example that you gave, um, you know, Eastern traditions often use sort of the, the thunder as sort of that, you know, loud clap of, of sound that awakens people. Um, and I think it's probably um, a very common analogy. And again, you know, I think um, almost all of these ideas, if people sat down and thought about them in the absence of a Buddha, it would come out of the human condition again. That someone would say, aha, you know, this is, what if we looked at it this way? So it's not, Buddhism as a religion is a handy way of um, handing down information and, and holding information. It's never was a congregational devotional practice. However, the congregational devotional aspect is useful and many people find it um, helpful. So that is one way to practice, but it was never um, meant to be only delivered in that manner. It just predominates because level of interest people have. Well, and, uh, and you know, the, the subtitle of the text is also perfect consciousness. So, you know, it's definitely, um, I think the idea of getting beyond duality or recognizing even a hidden unity, you know, pairs of opposites is, is a profound insight that can lead somebody to that kind of thundering insight that that thundering consciousness where you're all of a sudden instead of being caught in the system in the sort of web of maya you're seeing the the whole system it's like whole systems perception instead of uh functioning through one system or another system uh and we could even be talking about that neurologically you know we're talking about a whole whole mind or whole consciousness approach where nothing is excluded, uh, including uh, nothing. You know, it, it seems as though it's like that, not this, not that, not, not this, not, not that, uh, neither both, nor neither, nor either, or, you know, it, it's, it's bringing the, awareness into this state where the whole the mandala can be perceived and you know i that's another reason i don't know something about shingon always clicks for me because the idea of the two mandalas the diamond world diamond realm and the womb realm mandalas and the way that they're actually one mandala yet they're two it makes a lot of sense. And I think that the con concept of 
reality as a giant mandala where everything is interconnected, interrelated, and interpenetrating, I think that's a, I think that's really useful because it gets your head out of this either or consciousness into this both and consciousness. Actually, I, those those are really good examples. I'm glad you brought them up because um, the the auto shingle practice and the mandalas are there to sort of guide the practitioner into that understanding um because again i'm sure for listeners and sometimes even for myself uh listening to it it it's not so approachable from just a um sit and hear it or even read about it perspective it's something that has to be experienced for themselves and you know that experience can be done you know through pilgrimage through you know the just a huge variety of different methods, but the, that insight, you know, how it's gained, I think comes in a variety of different methods and the mandalas are there to show that, you know, what skills exist for the Buddha, what obstacles there are for the practitioner. And then, you know, really showing that there's no, there's no difference between the two. So like I was saying in the beginning, the, you know, something that we would say inherently, you know, that's a, that's a tragedy that's bad. That can also be the thing that helps someone break through to see, you know, their connectedness. And that kind of seems like the, what Arthur Avalon called the tantric distinction, you know, to even see the substance of enlightenment and suffering and that's that mandala consciousness. I can't help but think about how, you know, like in Indian Shaktism, you know, you have these Shaktipitas where there's these different uh, centers in India which are each considered to be like different parts of the body of the goddess, you know, uh, Shakti or Kali, and how that turns the entire landscape into a sacred landscape embodying, you know, the, the divine. And then how the tantric Buddhism took that idea and uh, interpreted it or expressed it differently, yet maybe even more completely to the point where, yeah, you can make a pilgrimage to Khoisan and Khoisan itself is arranged like a mandala, yet your own body is also the mandala. Your own mind is the mandala. Your home is the mandala. And, that to me just it's a revolution because it takes it from this is sacred this is profane to ever you can there's no this ultimate skillful means like everywhere is enlightenment everywhere is opportunity to practice everywhere is potential for realization and anything that happens is potential for awakening it is and i think that's um you know one of the reasons we don't Spiritual practice isn't limited to the temple and it's not limited to the meditation cushion, nor should it ever be. Um, but everything is an opportunity, even obstacles. Uh, I remember my teacher reminding me often and early on um, to welcome in obstacles as opportunities for practice, which seemed was very hard in the beginning, but it was, it was very good advice because the, temple is not you know this escape it's actually you know a 
place to sort of you know, lock yourself in and, and do more rigorous practice because you have to live with other people and there's still a lot of human baggage happening, but you are working on it more intensely and hopefully more successfully than you would um, in other environments. But I just wanted to uh, express my gratitude to you for, for coming on Sensei and for explaining these uh, points of Dharma to us and to our audience. And I just want to express my gratitude to you. We appreciate you. And I definitely value uh, everything you are sharing uh, with us. So I just want to say that and wish everyone, uh, you know, joy and peace and well-being and um, wish you guys a good night. Thank you. I, again, I do really appreciate you guys having me back on and hope we can, can do this in the future. And I'm always intrigued by the other uh, guests that you have on the podcast. Cool. Thank you, Sensei. Well, that was a super interesting conversation with Kosho Sensei. We uh, thank him very much for his time and his uh, wisdom. I think he brought up a lot of challenging ideas for perhaps the Western esotericist, some ideas that uh, you're going to need to maybe chew on for a little while. I don't think they are necessarily irreconcilable with a lot of the stuff that we find in the West. Um, What are your thoughts generally? The idea of the self in the West is treated frequently as an abstraction. Um, And I think sometimes it's even fetishized or put on a pedestal and viewed from a distance or used as a tool Um, except for perhaps in depth psychology there is often not any direct attempt to grasp what the self is or if there is a self and i would say that kosho's point which seemed to emerge more toward the latter half of the talk is that uh, it's not that there is uh, a lack of a self there's a lack of an independent, separately existing self, which incidentally was definitely the misinterpretation of early modern scholarship uh, on Buddhist texts, which certainly seemed motivated to attempt to interpret it as a uh, nihilistic religion, you know, a, a, a non-spiritual religion. And, and that's, that's been addressed in scholar in, in you know more recent scholarship, which certainly is based upon more honest textual analysis, and has definitely refuted that position, which is inherently biased and definitely rooted in certain misunderstandings. Um, I think Kosho then correctly, in my opinion, interprets the self as if as a sort of um, epiphenomenon of interdependent consciousness, which I think is closer to the truth, you know, and I don't know, I, I don't have the answers to these things, but it's important that we try to understand that. Yes. You know, is, is the self just an aggregate of appetites and impressions from sense perceptions? Is it also an accrual or accumulation of uh, karma, 
Or is it more than that? Is there something deeper? Can attempt to get to the heart of things, attempt to get to what the self truly is. I mean, if you withdraw the earthly personality, if you withdraw the preferences, the antipathies, the appetites, the interests, if you go to the core of a person after removing all of that, familial associations, profession, you know, all of those things, all of the things that really are a collection of preferences, what are you left with in the end? Identification with the body, you remove that. So if you remove the body identification, I think a lot of people would no longer have a point of reference. And the Hermetic scriptures talk about this too. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, I don't claim to be <clears throat> enlightened, but um, it makes sense to me. I, I think that if you do unwrap the person enough, you peel every single layer of the onion away, what's left is uh, is still that spark of the divine, is still the absolute uh, stillness. It's It's still going to be there in that sense. Um, all the trappings that you were talking about, the uh, desires and all the other layers of uh, baggage, they aren't going to be there. And that's a lot of times what we fear losing, ironically enough, because we think that that baggage is really the important stuff that makes us who we are, when that's actually not the case necessarily, or shouldn't be. Um, I also was really glad that you brought up the uh, Thunder Perfect Mind, I think that was uh, perfectly blended into to what we were talking about, and I think it was very relevant. And I would add, in addition, um, the Secret Book of John um, for a very similar type of, for lack of a better term right now, crazy wisdom um, that, that really makes you break free of the conventional uh, patterns in order to kind of step into the next level of understanding. Yes, and I mean, non-dual, uh, non-dual perspective is essential, and I don't think that is just something that is we should assign to Buddhist thought. I mean, non-duality does not have to necessarily resolve itself into a sort of uh, philosophical monism or even approach an approach like we see in Advaita Vedanta. Uh, Non-duality does not have to be qualified or quantified. It's just you have to, to step out of the dualistic consciousness, this, that, either, or, self, other. Um, that is something that will enable a person to see the greater picture. And I think a greater sense of self arises when we're able to embrace non-duality. Interesting. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the the common ground I was able to find um, specifically with uh, the bodhisattvas and saints. They they seem to be very similar, if not identical, in their nature and and their functions. So I think there's some really common ground to be found there. I mean, I also thought it was interesting the 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 migration or the ability for being such as uh, bodhisattvas and gods to themselves die and be reborn. I don't think that's unheard of in the West. I think if we look at Egypt, we can see that with maybe um, 
I mean, the most obvious would be Osiris dying and being reborn uh, in a different uh, a different plane. And it's interesting because Plutarch talks about in his work Isis and Osiris that um, perhaps Isis and Osiris were maybe humans, and I can get to that in a second, but um, that they were daimons or in that daimonic spirit level and that they uh, perhaps leveled up to to the higher level level of gods, which, which definitely um, makes sense in the context of what we were talking about today with Kosho. This also kind of meshes with what you see in some of the uh, ATRs, I think, because if you look at someone like Shango, he was uh, possibly a human uh, leader, king, who then died and became a god. So that would that would seem to speak to also the kind of ability to to level up and, and change positions and move around the hierarchy in that in that way. So I, I think there is a lot of common ground to be found. Yeah, and I think posthumous divinization is something that is. Uh, common to many cultures, and, and I do think it's natural to find parallels because um, where there are spiritual facts common to all people, you're going to find um, phenomenons that are uh, phenomena that arise across uh, divides. Just as there's going to be very specific phenomena that's specific to a culture and to a collective. There's also going to be epiphenomena as well. And it, there are parallels. I mean, the Harukas are similar to the heroes also, you know, when we're talking about tantric Buddhism and things like that. And, and it's not only uh, in the spiritual realm that I think that these parallels are prevalent. It's also in the history of ideas because there, were, there was a Greco-Buddhist colony in Pakistan that arose um, under one of the generals that inherited Alexander's empire, the Gandharvan culture. And in Gandharva, you have a synthesis between Greek philosophy and religion and Buddhist philosophy and religion. And this may be the origin of some of the Stoic influences on Buddhism. So, you know, there, there certainly is a, a transmission of ideas, a genealogy of these traditions in the same way that in Shingon, I think, is uh, really, I think, deserves some honor because they are completely willing to acknowledge that there is a Zoroastrian root to some of what they do. I mean, and this is significant because they're in, during one of the Zoroastrian um, dynasties, there was a syncretic deity that was worshipped called um, Buddha Mazda, which was a synthesis between the Zoroastrian Ahura Mazda and uh, the Buddha. So there is this sort of combining and recombining and the synthesis of ideas, which I think in its essence represent on the material plane a manifestation of spiritual realities that are kind of beyond a linear interpretation, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. And I think that ties into what we were talking to Jeffrey Kotick about to a degree uh, way back in that episode, 
just that uh, commingling of cultures and and ideas. Um, these are univer- a lot of these ideas are universal ideas um, that aren't uh, owned by any specific culture or religion. So I think we can go on and on for a bit about all this, but we should probably wind it down for our outro. I think this was a, a nice episode to dovetail our talks with uh, Aaron Cheek and Nicholas Shrek. And if you want to listen to more of Kosho's wisdom, um, you can look at episode 12. And I, I would also say that you don't have to be a Buddhist to embrace Buddhist ideas or to meditate. There's no, there'll never, you will never experience any loss or lack. You'll never feel like you wasted your time from a serious study of Buddhism. There's no, there's no way to not gain something from it. If you want to become a Buddhist, that's one thing, but Buddhism can enrich any person's path. It contains perspectives, tools that are useful for definitely magicians, mystics, but also people in other religions, you know, whether that whether you're a Christ, Christian or whether you are uh, practicing a diasporic religion or whether you know, no matter what you, what you're involved with, even a quote-unquote paganism, Buddhism has something to offer you because it will enable you to get beyond, I think, very Western models, modes of looking at reality, interpreting experiences. And so I, I strongly encourage anyone listening to find a, find one of the branches of Buddhism that they jive with, that they feel resonant with. Try and learn a little bit about it. Maybe try meditating. Try to understand the nature of the mind. Try to get to a place where you're comfortable with these tools, these insights, this wisdom. And it will, it will help you. It's designed to help everyone everywhere at any time, which is why it's said that the Buddha adapted his teachings to everyone. So there's no, which is essentially identical to what the Gnostics said about Christ. It's, it's, it's identical thing. The teaching is adapted so that everyone everywhere at any time, at any place could receive the lion's roar and potentially become liberated from suffering. Nicely said. So on that note, I think we should wrap it up. Where can people find us? Uh, they can find. Where can people find us? They can find me at your mom's house. <laughs> um, now they can. We have a, a website. We have a YouTube channel. We have. A, I don't know if it's Patreon or Patreon. I, it annoys me when I hear people say Patreon because I think you're a patron, so it's like a Patreon. But if they want to call it Patreon, they can still donate. I might, I might edit this part out. Um, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Facebook, YouTube, <laughs> iTunes. Uh, I'm probably not going to ask you that question anymore at the end of our show. <laughs> okay, everybody, that's it for us, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.